Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll have the uh, chance to talk with the author of Fed Power, How Finance Wins. The authors are Lawrence Jacobs and Desmond King. The book is published by Oxford University Press. I have the pleasure to talk with Lawrence Jacobs today. Larry, how are you doing? I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Pleasure to have you uh, on again. You had come on previously with a different co-author. Before we get started, maybe you can just um, introduce yourself again and, and also your, your uh, co-author in this project. Sure. I'm a, uh, a frequent um, researcher on a lot of different topics in American politics, particularly public opinion and elections, uh, political representation and democracy, and uh, health policy. Um, this book, which is on the Federal Reserve, is a new area for me and one that I really uh, felt obligated almost to take on about five or six years ago. My co-author, Des King, who's at Oxford University, uh, shares my passion about uh, understanding um, the American political system, uh, both in terms of what's going on in Washington, but also the relationships between Washington and the various um, political and economic interests that are trying to constrain and drive uh, what our government does. Yeah, and you know, and 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 framing it in in that way, it does raise sort of this real uh, question that I wanted to ask you at the start, but which is, you know, despite its significance, pol- political scientists have tended not to spend very much time focusing on the Federal Reserve. Why do you think this is the case? Uh, why is this gap in the literature there? First off, you're absolutely right. It's it's extraordinary. When Des King and I started uh, thinking about um, the very uh, beginning of this project, we kept looking for the definitive work that would really um, take on the Fed and think about the uh, institutions of the Federal Reserve, both in Washington and the regional structure, but also the interests of uh, finance. And nothing has really been written in terms of a comprehensive book in almost three decades, which is astounding given the importance of the Fed. Um, And I should say that is within political science. There's quite a bit of writing by economists and um, those who specialize in the Fed, but they have a, you know, I think from the perspective of at least sociology and political science, the economic view of the Fed is quite different, and the idea of political economy and the role of organized interest and institutions is largely ignored uh, in the way a lot of us uh, kind of understand it. Um, So we took this on, frankly, because we were looking for explanations for what was happening during the financial crisis. And um, we wanted to be able to cite and, frankly, invite uh, some of these important authors who are writing about the Fed to some conferences we were holding in Oxford. We couldn't find any. There were people who, again, who had written about it decades ago, but that really wasn't up to the task of the financial crisis in 2008 and nine. Um, and so we felt almost drawn into this. It is a difficult topic. I do a lot on health policy, and that's certainly a, a complex topic. But I would say um, the complexity of um, capital markets and central banking uh, is still even another kind of rung up um, in terms of um, the technical matter. And that may deter some political scientists 
who uh, may not want to put in the time to really learn uh, about finance, but it's a big loss. Uh, what I've learned about finance has really reshaped the way I think about American politics. Now, you refer in the book to, and I'll quote, the exceptionalism of Fed power and authority. I wonder if you would gi- could give us the, the short history, not the, the long, very complicated history, but just the short history of the Fed as it relates to this unusual institutional structure and its exceptional nature. So let me first start by saying that if you look back in the study of American politics uh, for the last half century, the common theme has been the ways in which the American um, uh, government and state uh, is highly fragmented. Um, you can think of someone like Ted Lowy or, um, uh, you know, those who study Congress or the presidency. And the theme is always about how power is dispersed, about the conflict and dysfunction of um, our government institutions. They battle each other uh, across these competing lines of authority. Um, so that's the that's the backdrop. The Fed is not like that. It's really an exception because we've seen this historic trajectory since it was established in 1913 uh, of starting out as basically a regional collection of uh, Federal Reserve banks. Um, And that uh, is revealed during the Great Depression not to have been terribly effective, uh, monetary policy or in surveys of last resort. And then particularly uh, since the 1950s, the enormous expansion of the technical capacity of the Fed to do a variety of different kinds of financial and economic analyses, but also, and perhaps especially, it's growing autonomy and independence, uh, first from the U.S. Treasury and then from the government overall. Um, so we are now looking at a institution like no other in the domestic arena. Um, in terms of the overall government, I would say the Fed is akin to the National Security Agency in terms of its ability to go it alone and to have the capacity to do that. Now, one might ask, what, what's the harm in this, this technocratic arrangement? Um, which aspects of the Great Recession can we pin to the Fed and its, its uh, peculiar design? That's a good question, and, and in fairness, um, there's certainly a need for a central bank. This is not a book uh, that you know takes a page from Ron, uh, Ron Paul and talks about ending the Fed. Just the opposite. Uh, given the the volatility of financial markets um, and the need for monetary policy, uh, we strongly believe and make the case that we need a central bank. The problem is the type of central bank we have in America, which is separate from, independent of uh, our democratic process. And when you look at other capitalist countries with central banks, um, the Fed stands out for the independence and for its uh, attention to finance. So look at the crisis, and you see this mix. On the one hand, the, um, uh, the Federal Reserve certainly played a critical, indispensable role in heading off a Great Depression. We had a classic run on our financial institutions, and our credit markets had frozen. If the Federal Reserve had not stepped in to loosen up credit markets, we would have been back into a kind of 1930s-style financial crisis. Um, Now, having said that, though, um, there are several reasons for not being simply satisfied with that, though I would 
add that most of the Fed watchers use that story I've just told as justification on its own for the enormous power and independence of the Fed. First, the Federal Reserve's um, uh, uh, power and its um, and its influence, um, as great as it was, did not prevent it from making a catastrophic error. And you and you may remember, as you kind of think back over the history since 2009 and 10, there was this disturbing pattern where we would get to the beginning of, let's say, 2011 or 12 or 13 or 14, and the Fed would come out or the, the IMF would come out with encouraging reports about the uh, economic recovery that was now going to happen. It really was going to happen this year, and it would fizzle. We now know from uh, some very important research that's been done that one of the reasons that the economic recovery was so stalled was the enormous household debt that uh, saddled uh, house, uh, uh, consumers. And that was a mistake on the part of the Fed. They should have been addressing that household debt and ignoring it uh, really put a drag on our ability to get the economy going and get uh, jobs being created and, and, and especially getting income rising again. That was a mistake. Now, that's tied to the second issue, which is the Fed's favoritism. Um, when the Fed was uh, engaged in creating programs to uh, restore the credit markets, it and really this is quite different from what we see in other countries, was focused almost solely on the large financial institutions. They did virtually nothing for the 13 million American households that were in foreclosure proceedings between 2008 and 2013. Um, those families that saw you know, over $2 trillion in equity wiped out, and particularly African-American families that, that were really decimated by the Great Recession, there was no help from the Fed. Um, and so you've got this contrast between um, enormous credit being delivered to big finance and little being done uh, for households and businesses. Now, one of the responses we got from um, central bankers when we first started presenting this is, well, the Fed couldn't do anything else. There were no alternatives. So we spent some time going around and looking at what other central banks were doing, and that's just not the case. If you take a look at the, uh, the state conservative Bank of England, they did something that was inconceivable in the United States. They served as a last resort, as the Federal Reserve did, in extending credit to banks and non-banks. But in exchange for providing that credit, it also attached conditions, conditions that required uh, those banks and non-banks to offer an, uh, assistance to homeowners faced with foreclosure and businesses faced with, with uh, uh, bankruptcy or severe economic um, um, uh, problems. And so you can see a very different orientation in other countries. Now, notice those measures, that helps to address this household debt issue. And the Fed just wasn't focused on it, and frankly, it didn't need to. And, and for what reason is it not focused on that? Because these seem like quite, quite obvious uh, dimensions of the problem that other countries are dealing with, and, and, and yet the, the design and, and the, the personnel working for the Fed 
are, are averse to these solutions. Why is that? What's, what's the explanation that you, you come to? Well, there, there are three different types of explanations, and we, we look at them. One is that the Fed is captured by big finance. And this would mean you might expect, you know, the financial lobbies to have literally moved into the Fed. And, you know, there, there's certainly some cases where you could point to and they've been covered in the media. But it's really hard to find that kind of explicit um, arm twisting. Um, and the Fed, because it's so secretive, we don't really have access to that much information. Uh, so we found it difficult to, to really sustain this capture argument, though we don't dismiss it. Um, another possibility is that there's this revolving door, that the folks who work in uh, Wall Street uh, kind of shift positions over to the Fed and the people in the Fed kind of move into big finance. And there's certainly some cases of that. You'll notice that ben, ben Bernanke cashed in his uh, job as chair of the Fed for a very nice, uh, actually several positions in finance that are paying him uh, quite handsomely. But again, it's hard to sustain that as a general explanation. What struck us is that it wasn't simply the individuals um, uh, who were changing positions or the kind of fingerprints of uh, pressure groups, but the very basic organizational incentives of the Federal Reserve. And here's what I mean. The bread and butter for the Federal Reserve is the money it makes by selling and buying treasuries um, on the stock market and in financial markets. It raises an enormous amount of money. The Federal Reserve, unlike other government institutions, does not go to Congress for appropriations. This is a very important point. If you think about the um, government shutdowns in Washington and state governments uh, that have you know, kind of shuttered state parks, federal parks, um, and threatened other important government services, the Fed never has to face that because it raises its own money uh, through financial markets by its very operations. So the interests of the Fed are directly tied to um, its ability to sustain and to encourage the prospering of finance. You don't need to have a pressure group and you don't need to have a kind of changing of the guard in terms of revolving doors. The Fed's rationality, its basic interests, are to keep finance um, secure and profitable. Now, would you talk a little bit about the movement to reform the Fed? Um, for so long, this was associated with Ron Paul, but you show that the attention paid to the weaknesses of the Fed is, is much wider than just that. So, how how formalized is is the pressure to to change some of these institutional rules of the Fed? So we went back and we looked at other periods where the Fed was kind of in the news, and there there have been some books and articles, and you, know, you can go back, for instance, to the early 1980s when there was a horrific uh, recession, and the Fed was blamed in part for that because it shot up interest rates in an effort to squelch uh, inflation. And when you look at the debates in Congress and around the country, it was mostly focused on a very particular set of policies, uh, interest rates, the emphasis on cutting off inflation and whether that was um, uh, uh, too great a, a focus. There was very little about the organizational and the prerogatives of the Fed. 
That's changed today. And you certainly have the libertarian uh, voices. Uh, Rand Paul, uh, who's in the Senate, is an example of that. But you also have a group of uh, progressives, um, Elizabeth Warren and others, who are pressing for uh, a significant reorganization of the Federal Reserve. Um, our perspective is that this is a symptom of the fact that the Fed has overreached and it's engaged in policies that are simply undemocratic and unfair uh, to uh, working Americans and to businesses on Main Street. And, and what would a change actually look like? Is this a legislative process or is this something that would come through uh, executive order? What would, what would change of the Fed actually entail? Well, in our view, we need a new game plan. Um, because America is now on a path where we're having financial crises about every decade or so. And Dodd-Frank was a response to this overreach by the Fed that I've been describing. And what Dodd-Frank, which is the most significant reform since the Great Depression, it was passed in 2010, uh, it did some great good. Uh, including setting up the Consumer Protection Bureau um, that everybody is now seeing the results in terms of the conduct of credit card companies and others. But that approach was basically to attempt to handcuff the Fed. And in some respects, it makes America um, less able to fend off the next financial crisis. What we need, uh, that, this is the argument that Des King and I make at Fed Power, is a new game plan. The game plan would have three parts. One, the Federal Reserve has enormous uh, responsibilities in the area of regulation. Um, and this, in, in a way, pulls the Fed in several different directions. It's being asked both to work on in financial markets, but it's also being asked to be a cop. Of, uh, on the financial uh, market beat, and it's proven difficult for the Fed to do both. We think that the Fed's responsibilities ought to be pared back in terms of regulation. Secondly, there's a principle in public administration that public authority ought to follow public money. In this case, the use of public authority to extend loans and guarantees. Um, and there ought to be a significant uh, change um, from what is now, in, in some significant ways, private control of the Fed. The Federal Reserve is 12 regional banks, as well as a, um, a national office in Washington, which has a board of governors. Those 12 regional banks, two-thirds of the uh, membership on the boards of those 12 regional banks are held by private financial interests. So you've got kind of private banks and equity firms and others who are running the show in those regional banks. Uh, that seems to be a mistake to us. We also agree with uh, some of the bipartisan legislation introduced that the president of the New York Fed, which is the most important, ought to be uh, a position that the president nominates and subject to Senate confirmation. Third, and, most, and perhaps most important, is that we need to move away from this highly fragmented um, approach to um, the administration of finance. Uh, we, let me give you an example. One of the biggest steps that Dodd-Frank took was to create um, a stability board to govern systematically important financial institutions. Well, that stability board 
is um, controlled by 10 different agencies. I mean, this is like imagining 10 cooks in the kitchen. Um, it's going to be very difficult for that to be very effective. And there is decades of research on administration that backs up that, that concern. What we've seen in other countries such as Canada that's created a coordinated uh, administrative structure and given both authority and uh, to a superintendent who is responsible to legislative branch is that it's possible to actually police in a responsible and effective way, finance. 2008 and 9, America almost went back to the Great Depression. Canada never experienced a 2008 and 9 crisis. Canada never had a direct taxpayer bill out like TARP. Um, how did it do it? It had a different approach to financial administration, and we need to take a look at that and see if there are elements that we can draw on. Yeah, the book again, Fed Power, How Finance Wins, published by uh, Oxford University Press this year. The authors, Lawrence Jacobs and Desmond King. Larry, thank you so much for your time today. Good to be with you.